0: You know, what's amazing to me about the Olympics is that everybody has a fascinating story. There are no boring Olympians. Mesdames et messieurs,
1: the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games,
0: is about to begin. This is going to be close.
2: (gasps)
1: Hello, fans of Flastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you
2: today? I have a story for you. You do? I do. So, I went swimming, mm-hmm. and I was thinking of Jacqueline Simino. And I was thinking about when I was a kid, I used to think it was really fun to do handstands in the water and little flips. So, I tried to do a little flip. Under the water. <laughs> and when I stood back up, I almost threw up. Oh, no. I was so dizzy and so nauseous from this one little underwater flip. Wow. So as if we didn't know the artistic swimmers were amazing enough <laughs> for their, their strength and their the, – the disorientation and vertigo when you flip underwater – that doesn't bother you when you're seven is really serious because you lose your equilibrium with what's up and what's down. Mm -hmm. I do not recommend it over the age of like 12.
1: (laughs) Now I want to go swimming and try it and and do the handstands. Just be prepared. Be prepared. I will report back. Uh, You know, speaking of reporting, we got our Team
2: USA Oreos in the house. With the sparkles, the bursting sparkles.
1: Yeah, you know – the generic version of Pop Rocks, popping candy. You know what's fun is sharing your Oreos with somebody who doesn't know the popping candy is in there <laughs> because Ben was like, I, what, what, oh, there's popping candy in them. I thought I was having a stroke."
2: <laughs> well, it's okay, to so start here, a,
1: and it takes a it takes like 2 seconds for them to kick in.
2: So you eat do the, not eat one of those in the swimming pool <laughs> when you're doing a flip because you will give yourself a stroke, apparently.
1: Oh, but that was, that was I would say, totally cool because that was a lot of fun. So if you're going to share your Oreos, don't tell somebody about the Pop Rocks and see what happens. But did they taste good? Yeah, they taste fine. You know, I think, obviously, they don't look as good as they do in the photographs because food stylists and food photographers do magic in making images. I think it's more of a double stuff. And they took the doubled part and kind of halved that to make the red and the blue. I look at the red, white, and blue layers and think that should be a triple stuff Oreo. But I think it's really double stuff in size.
2: That was too too much math for my
1: adult spun (laughs) brain. I hear you. It's hard to think about. But yeah, I I do enjoy them. The Pop Rocks are fun. I
2: have people in my house who I could put an Oreo in front of them and they would absolutely ask no questions. So I have a plan.
1: Oh, excellent. I want to hear all about that. Well, speaking of totally fun things, our guest today is totally interesting. He is Jeremy Fuchs, author of the book Total Olympics, Every Obscure, Hilarious, Dramatic, and Inspiring Tale Worth Knowing. We talked with Jeremy about the book and some of the fun facts throughout Olympic history. Take a listen. Jeremy... We always get the question, "Why do you have a podcast about the Olympics?" So, how how about for you? Why do you write Why do you write this book?
0: I've been Olympic obsessed uh, for as long as I can remember. Um, there's a I wish it wasn't a true story, but there's a true story of me. Probably after the 2004 Olympics, hoping that I could learn how to pole vault so I could uh, join the Olympics. I was probably about 12. I have no athletic ability, which I knew at the time but I figured, Hey, can't be that hard. Right. It is. Um, you know, I just love it. It's, um, something that becomes my life for two weeks, every few years. It's a combination of things for me. It's the amazing, obviously athletes and, you know, these performances, um, it's the ability to see different sports that you don't usually get to see. And then it's just, you know, As a sports nerd having you know 24-hour sports is always you know not a bad thing either um and so for me it's sort of a perfect storm and so i think by the end of two weeks my friends and family are kind of tired of me um watching so much but i just i just love it i love watching i really i think my favorite part is just watching things i don't get to watch uh you know we can all watch basketball and baseball you know pretty much you know year-round can't really watch cross-country skiing at least not in the us um so to be able to take all that sort of passion and put it into a book was awesome for me and really exciting and um, just gave me a chance to sort of geek out year round.
1: Okay. So I have a question. You, you've also written for Sports Illustrated. So you are a member of the media as well. Why is it that media outlets don't necessarily write about the smaller sports continuously?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's definitely a few reasons. I mean, surely some of it is the economics, you know, there's no broadcast deal for, most of these sports, you know, maybe you'll get a world championship here and there, but really not. It's really only kind of goes to the swimming level. And like, that's about it. That's certainly part of it. You know, take a sport, I use cross country as an example, just because it's something I enjoy watching. And I think it's a good example because it's a predominantly European sport. You know, we're not sending journalists to Finland to cover, you know, the Americans race in the middle, you know, the dead of winter. I think as an American media in particular, we're sort of trained on sort of the big four sports, maybe a little bit of soccer, maybe some few things here and there. But to go sort of outside that comfort zone really only seems to happen at the Olympics. And even then, it only really happens when it's, you know, either an American star or, you know, in recent years swimming and gymnastics. You know, you don't see many of the sports on primetime. You only see, you know, the swimmings and the gymnastics and track and fields of the world. You know, personally, I wish that would change, but, you know, it's been so entrenched for so many years that it's almost not surprising.
1: Yeah, that's kind of, Ginny Thrasher was on our show a few weeks ago, and when she won the first gold of the Rio Games, all of a sudden, everybody knew who she was because she won the first gold, and then we all became experts in air rifle. But, yeah. you know, it's it's really kind of interesting how the resources aren't there or just trying to gain importance and and like you mentioned cross country with Jesse Diggins winning the Tour de Ski this year then it got a little bit more prominence but it's it's, it's tough and it's hard when when you want to see something like modern pentathlon or taekwondo on a regular basis and you just can't.
0: Yeah, and I think the problem also is that if you ask most people what modern pentathlon is they might not know and probably aren't able to name all five sports or all five disciplines within that. Same thing with decathlon or heptathlon, all the thons. Um, I think the Jesse Diggins thing is really interesting because I was surprised, and this was this kind of iconic moment or should have been an iconic moment in US sports history. Uh, not only was it an amazing race, there was that amazing call to go along with it. And it was you know just this big event. And you know now Jesse Diggins is probably one of the tops cross-country skiers in the world. She's going to be, you would think, a huge star for Beijing in 2022. And again, I I bet if you ask a lot of people, they probably don't even know who she is. Um, And so we have a lot of work to do in sort of elevating some of these sports, particularly the ones that Americans are good at. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, we're not going to watch table tennis where, you know, no American has ever gone anywhere. But we have sports that are not the traditional sports that Americans are good at. And you would sort of hope they would be highlighted more than they are. But, you know, time and time again, it's it's the big sport and the, and the biggest names that get the most attention and not the little things that are to me just as fascinating, if not more so.
2: So you filled the book with a lot of little things and a lot of fascinating things, but then you also have some big stories and some very famous Olympians. So what was the decision behind putting the stories in that you did?
0: Yeah. You know, for me, you know, I definitely gravitate towards some of those smaller, lesser-known stories. They interest me as a writer. They interest me as just a person. But I definitely felt that, all right, if you're going to cover the Olympics, there are certain things that you can't not write about, that a book would not be complete without writing about Michael Phelps or Mark Spitz you know, even though those are known quantities and their stories are, you know, obviously well known, I sort of took the challenge of trying to find things that maybe were a little bit lesser known about their stories. You know, Michael Phelps' first Olympics in Sydney when he was 15 years old is not, obviously he didn't win anything there. So no one really knows as much about that. And so that was sort of my approach. I wanted to create a book that sort of covered the entirety of the Olympic experience, everything from everything we know to all the things that you don't know. And I think you should know. And and my hope was to maybe approach some of the more well-known stories in a familiar, but also, you know, somewhat different way, and then bring some of those lesser known stories to light. And, you know, in in doing so, hoping to create, you know, what I think is a pretty full picture of the Olympic experience um, that covers sort of every side.
2: Did you know or heard pieces of a lot of the stories you included? Or did you have a lot of surprises as you were uh, researching the book? Tons of surprises. Okay, so what was the biggest surprise? What what story really just said, I can't believe that happened.
0: Well, the the biggest. I mean, it's it's almost like a series of stories. The biggest surprise for me was how unorganized the early Olympics were, you know, from 1896 to like 19, you know, the 1920s. I mean, they were sort of a mess. They were trying to fit. You know, we take the Olympics for granted. I think the fact that you know you can turn on the TV and 24/7 there's a sport. You know, there's on eight channels and everything's on. You know, everything's online the early days, they didn't really know what sports would go where. (laughs) You know, one of my favorite stories is the story of Margaret Abbott, who's the first American female to win a gold medal in golf in 1900 in Paris. She had no idea she was competing in the Olympics. She died never knowing. A researcher from the University of Florida, you know, was doing research on women in the Olympics, contacted her family and saying, you know, trying to get more information. They had no idea. That's how chaotic the Olympics were. You could participate in the Olympics and not know about it. And so that to me was fascinating. We just think that the Olympics are this well-oiled machine and have been since the beginning, and they really haven't. There was just chaos, um, particularly the first few games, but even even going um, into the forties and fifties, it wasn't what we expect nowadays. And I think to me, that was so fascinating because usually when you have chaotic things like that, they don't last chaotic things tend to break down and the Olympics didn't, um, if anything, they got bigger and more lavish and, you know, more costly and, um, you know, gained more prominence worldwide. So learning that history to me, was fascinating learning how it sort of went from this idea, uh, in someone's head to this worldwide phenomenon that we devote all our attention to and people spend tons of money on. Um, that to me was incredibly fascinating and something that I had really no idea about.
2: And you have a whole section on legends, which is some of those much better known stories. So why pick one over another? Because you include, like you said, Michael Phelps. But then you also included Larissa Latinina, who most Americans have never heard of or only heard of because of her relation to the record with Michael Phelps.
0: Yeah, it was really hard to choose. And I had to make, you know, there's a version of the book somewhere that's like double in length. I could have written about every amazing Olympic athlete. and I. Would probably still be writing. So for me, it was just trying to find who could I say something new about. Who could I find, you know, some insight, some unique insight that you know maybe hasn't written been written about. I, you know, I wish it was more scientific than that, but you know, I think the toughest part about writing a book is knowing when to stop and knowing when to cut. And then when I was sort of halfway through writing it and I was already past my word count, like some decisions had to be made. But yeah, I, I could have written about every gold medalist ever. I mean, everybody, you know, what's amazing to me about the Olympics is that everybody has a fascinating story. There are no boring Olympians. I mean, they all sort of come from somewhere. They often persevere against whether it's injury, you know, personal hardship, you know, economic or political hardship. And then they have this one event and they do just, they're the best in the world at it. And that's what made the book so challenging to write. And it's also so fascinating to write is that all these people are incredible. You know, Even the ones who, you know, maybe have gotten into trouble or have done things wrong. They have these amazing stories. And so it was a real pleasure for me to go through them, learn about them, and then, you know, try to translate it onto the page.
2: Okay. So you did have to cut a lot. So is there a story that you can share that didn't make the book that is the one that broke your heart to take
0: out yes because i had thought it made the book and then i realized that it didn't because there was a you know because of COVID, there was a gap there was a year gap of when it was published so i sort of put it down and was focusing on COVID. and i was like oh yeah i thought i wrote about that because i did i looked up and there was a draft and you know my folder but it wasn't actually in the book so and the reason i was so surprised is because it's like oddly relevant but not really so in 1956 the games were in melbourne australia actually it was a big success It was one of the biggest um, successes at the time everything was great everything was a hit except for equestrian the olympic australia had a six-month horse quarantine so any horse that entered the country had a quarantine for six months which they didn't tell the olympic committee in their bid um, which i'm sure would not have gone over well they were unwilling to budge i guess to their credit i don't know um so they had to find a alternative location for equestrian. So they chose Sweden. Not really sure why, but they chose Stockholm and you know, hosted the Olympics before. And so they had just equestrian in Stockholm. They had an opening ceremony. Queen Elizabeth from England was there. They had all the pomp and circumstance of a regular Olympics, but just for equestrian. And I, always, I just found that fascinating because like, of all sports to have all the pomp and circumstance and its own opening ceremony for equestrian, which is like one of the least <laughs> watched, and, you know, especially here. And then I think I was so disappointed because of the, the quarantine took on new relevance, obviously, in the last, you know, 18 months. And it wasn't a person quarantine, but a horse quarantine. And I thought, as I was sort of watching the you know pandemic unfold, that story stuck out in my head because I was like, well, are they going to have to do that, <laughs> you know, when the games resume? Um, they, I mean, they still may, for all we know. So, yeah, that was a real heartbreaker just because I just found it so oddly delightful that they just figured out another place to go and it worked. It was a huge success. And the rest of the games were. They just part of it happened in a completely different part of the globe.
1: The other fun thing about those games was that they were in like December because it was their summer, and you yep. never see that today. Even, you know, they talk about the, the heat in Tokyo with well, the last time Tokyo hosted, they were in the fall.
0: Yeah, I I would, you know, it's so interesting about how things work for TV nowadays. I remember in Beijing, they made it so that Michael Phelps' races would be in prime time, even though it was like morning or like late afternoon or, you know, late morning in Beijing. Yeah, you know, you would think Japan in the summer is going to be brutal. And some of those outside events are not going to be fun. But things have become so, you know, professionalized and everything is just down to a science that, Changing things, which is what's going to make this game so fascinating, uh, but changing things is sort of a big deal in a way that in the early games, changing was just, that's all they did was change things up and, you know, experiment and try new things. Nowadays, it's, it's so much more, you know, well-organized and everything's down to a science. Uh,
1: how long did it take you to write this?
0: So the first draft I had to do, just because of timing, thinking the Olympics were going to come out in 2020, in about four and a half months. The total book process was probably about a year with revisions, edits, adding some things, taking out some things, uh, photo research, where there's some amazing photos in the book, um, illustration. So, yeah, about a year total. The first draft took about five months. And then, yeah, we just sort of been waiting. You know, when COVID came, we're like, all right, Olympics are postponed. Like, it doesn't really make much sense. And so it was, uh, we were waiting longer than it actually took to produce, but uh, it was exciting nonetheless for it to come out. And, you know, now we get two Olympics sort of back to back. So I think it actually, in a weird way, the timing is going to work out.
2: Yeah, because you do talk both winter and summer, and some of the winter stories are uh, amazing and fascinating. You know, the whole idea, we talk a lot about the Berlin 32 games, but you have a whole section on the winter games that were also in Germany. In 1936, yeah, excuse
0: me. Yeah, this to me was the most – I this is probably one of the most fascinating stories for me in the book. Because everyone knows the 1936 Berlin Games, the Jesse Owen Games, one of probably the most well-known games. This is sort of Hitler's big debut, I guess, on the world stage. You know, you have the Letting Reef install videos and all these things, right? You know, the, Jesse Owens has been ingrained in popular culture about sort of destroying the – Aryan myth and all those things. They hosted a games in Germany a few months before that from the Winter Games in sort of a more industrial um town. And what I found so interesting was a few things. One, they were still Nazis, they were not great. They weren't I feel weird saying this, they didn't go as far as they did in 1936, right? So in 1936, you know, all the Jews were banned from you know from, from the German team. In the winter games, they allowed like a half Germ a half Jew on the hockey team. There was like less signs of sort of like exclusionary things and sort of Nazi propaganda, but there were still some. The way I sort of formulated it was that it was like a trial balloon, almost like how far could they go in the Summer Games, which would have gained more attention and were more popular at the time. And you know, Summer Games were probably still are more popular. So like they tried some things, it worked. The press bought into a lot of it. There was a lot of really bad you know, New York Times articles about how great things were. And, you know, it was for me, it was like, all right, how far can we get without people noticing? And no one really noticed. They went further in 1936 in Berlin. I think they obviously weren't thinking that Jesse Owens was going to go and win four gold medals, which sort of tore the whole thing apart. But I think it was so interesting because we don't talk about those games. And I think, you know, obviously the Jesse Owens thing makes the Berlin game so memorable, but they were doing the same exact things, just like, one degree less. And I think without that sort of breakthrough performance, no one really remembers it or talks about it. And I think it's just as interesting, um, just as sort of terrifying in many ways, and just as important as a political event. And really one of the first times, you know everyone talks about in Berlin, how politics and sports come together as one. I mean, a few months earlier, the same thing was happening. And I think it's a, a games that deserves a lot more study and attention and sort of you know revisiting because you know we now know how impactful those berlin games were and they that would not have happened without uh, the winter games in garmisch partenkirchen
1: yeah yeah it's just it's really interesting to think about that and think about how they really pushed the envelope and also just how the winter olympics doesn't get the same amount of attention even today
0: yeah i and i personally actually prefer the i mean i love both obviously but i prefer the winter olympics they don't get as much attention i mean some of it you know it happens in the middle of february you know it's summer games people are off maybe at least for part of it it feels a little bit more festive you know as opposed to seeing everybody freezing um but yeah i i think there's definitely more to be written about those early 1936 games in the winter and i think you know, we talked so much we're going to talk about it again in 2022 in Beijing about how politics and the Olympics collide this was one of the first you know World War one there was games were being cancelled so obviously that was a political thing but you know by then you know in 1936 this was really the first major time that politics and the Olympics collided nowadays you can't separate the two it's impossible before then you kind of could Even, you know, the 1932 games in L.A., the Great Depression, it was still sort of separate in some ways. And so, yeah, it's a games I think are, to me, have been fascinating to read about and to learn about. I I hope through this book gets a little bit more attention.
1: Is there an athlete that surprised you more so than any other in the stories? I mean, like you say, it's hard because we're going to get 10,500 stories this year that are all going to be interesting. And we're never going to remember most of them, but... But uh, any, especially in the first section, because that's one of the things I liked about this book is that you had these first that that talk about different countries more so than
0: it. yeah, you know actually I, you know maybe because we were just talking about it, but Jesse Owens actually really surprised me, and I think everyone knows about what he did. You know, he won four gold medals. It was a cultural, you know, it's a moment that everyone knows about um, an African American man going into Nazi Germany and winning, and then. To me, uh, what the you know his sort of section of the book focuses on is coming home, and it's 1936 in America, and so he is had this happen today. You could imagine the huge superstar he would be. He came home; there was definitely some fanfare for sure. Um, he wasn't invited to the White House. He has a quote, and, I, and I'm butchering it, but something along the lines of you know you can't eat four gold medals, um, and so he sort of had to sort of out of necessity do sort of things that we might consider sideshows, right? So he would race horses, you know, he was a salesman, he was doing all these different things, but he had to make a living, right? And you can only run fast for so long. And he came home and was treated, you know, not the hero's welcome that you would expect from winning four gold medals. He was treated like any other African-American was at that point in time. And, you know, for decades, you know, thereafter. Um, And it's a part of his story that doesn't get told. Um, It's a part of a story that I think needs to be told because it's the realities of that time period in our country. Even people who accomplish amazing things and have a narrative, especially now, of sort of defeating white supremacy, only well, comes home and his experience is anything but the hero's welcome. And so that was really sort of fascinating, a little painful to, to read about. You know, that even, even those who accomplish these, you know, do these amazing, you know, world beating feats, uh, you come home and, and things aren't changed. And so, and that comes up a number of times for African American athletes, especially, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but, you know, obviously throughout our country's history gold medal feats, right? You win a gold medal in Olympics and then you come home and things aren't any better. Um, And so that was fascinating, obviously painful. And I think, again, something that people need to know about that, you know, just because you're an Olympic hero doesn't mean you come home and, and things are changed.
1: You've got another section in the book about discontinued sports, which is always fun to read about because, like you say, back in the day... The Olympics were kind of uh, chaotic, but they also had some wacky, wacky stuff. What kind of sports were you surprised to see were part of the games at one point in time?
0: Yeah, all the sports that were discontinued were weird. I mean, let's just say that up front. There's a reason they were discontinued. And it was so much fun to write about, like, especially the early games. You know, newspaper coverage in the early 1900s is fantastic. I mean, it's it's bad in many ways, but it's also fantastic. And The way they would be very colorful in their writing in a way that you don't see today. To me, the biggest surprise by far was art. For like 50 years, they had art. Painting, sculpture, architecture, music, literature, you name it, it was there. The idea sort of makes sense. You know, Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the modern games, definitely had this belief of sort of the mind and body working together in concert. And if you had a strong mind, you had a strong body and vice versa. And so they had these art competitions and they sort of continue today, um, not in a competition sense, but they have sort of these cultural exhibits at, at every game, so, you know, in the modern era. Um, but back then, you know, you could win gold, silver, or bronze. Um, there were judge competitions. It, the reason it stopped, and this was actually took me by surprise, was not because it wasn't a sport, was, but because these artists, in many cases, were not amateurs. You know, back then, being an amateur was the biggest thing. If you were not, you know, today, it's like, so odd to think about given, you know, some of the obviously professional athletes in many cases, we're going to see the NBA stars, uh, but also the endorsement money that comes, you know, it's hard not to see a commercial that doesn't have some mobiles or so many of these people back then, like sacrilege. So these artists were professionals. And so that's sort of why it stopped, not because art and sports, you know, it doesn't really go. And it was so fascinating to me because first of all, some of these competitions like wouldn't have a gold medal winner, but would have a bronze medal winner, like, or they would have a silver medalist, but not a gold, not a bronze. And so you, I feel like if you're the silver medalist, you have to wonder if no one beat you, are you really the gold medalist? I guess not. You're good, but not that good. And so, you know, I think that was just so odd to me. Like, here's this great the greatest athletes in the world and you have a painter nothing against painters, but like, it's not an Olympic sport. And so, and to have that for so many games, you know, so many of these discontinued sports that I talked to talked about were in the Olympics once, maybe twice. Art in the Olympics was there for like 40, 50 years. And so even some of these sports that weren't there for that long were at least had an athletic component to them. Um, you know, obviously art doesn't. Um, so that was fascinating to learn about and read about and, and, and investigate as were all the discontinued sports i mean you know these some of the times it was hard to find information about them you know you think the olympics there's everything has been written about it and like sometimes like there were some i couldn't find like anything on you know there was firefighting at the 1900 olympics and there was just like nothing on it i know the americans won there was like one sentence and like one story somewhere and like that was it and then some of them have been really written about like my personal favorite is called plunge for distance um which Every year, I think people are like, oh, I could do that. I think plunge or distance is the one thing that you could actually do. It was only in one games, again, for good reason. You dive into a pool and you see how far you float without moving. Person who goes the farthest wins. You know, There's a reason, obviously, that didn't stay. But I, I find that sport fascinating and how that sort of came to be. And I don't know, maybe I could do well on that. Maybe that's why I like it so much. As opposed to the sports you see today, like everyone like makes a joke about curling. It's like, Oh, I could do that. And you can't, obviously it's really hard. I think plunge for, maybe that's why they got rid of it. Cause plunge for distance was too easy. Um, you just see what happens. You just dive and see what happens. And like, that is still boggles my mind. You know, all these, you know, even after writing it in the book coming out like that, just is like, that's awesome to me.
1: <laughs> maybe there's a limit on how far the the human body can flow. Well, eventually you and stop.
0: Yeah, eventually yeah. you stop. You don't just well, go. Eventually on
2: Eventually you die.
0: Well, that too. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they would just keep going. Um, and this, the New York Times, again, I, I think one of the the best parts about writing the book was going back into the archives of so many newspapers and magazines, and especially in the early 1900s when you know they have the exact quotes in the book, and something like you know it favors the the mere mountains of fat among us. Which is one of my favorite quotes of all time and they just sort of put it out there but yeah that, that to me is one of the best and you know if that were to come back I would you know, I would be uh, I would fully support it.
1: When you did the research, did you read all these old articles in the old timey voice?
0: Oh yeah of course Yeah, of it, that was like the best part. I mean I love doing historical research in general which is probably the reason why I you know was attracted to this book but like yeah those articles are so bad but so good. And some of the information trying to extract stuff from it is like, it's just written sometimes in what seems like a different language. What are you
2: excited about for Tokyo? Uh,
0: Yeah, it's been so weird. I've been asked this obviously a number of times about like, what's going to happen in Tokyo? And I am on one hand, so incredibly excited, especially sort of having obviously been robbed of it for one year. Um, I'm also conflicted. I don't know if you guys feel that way. I feel like it's going to be very odd and sort of like, I don't know, holding my breath a little bit. Not just a, I mean, just the the thought that an athlete might have to miss, or you know, people obviously getting really sick and and, you know, and and worse, it's just that sort of specter over it is so uncomfortable. But at the same time, I I think it's gonna be hard not to enjoy it, um, just because I think we haven't had that type of event obviously in a long time. You know, we've been waiting a while for it, obviously a little bit longer than usual. I think for me, you know, in the summer, my favorite events, I mean, I, I do love swimming. Yes, it's again, it's not a sport we really watch outside of the Olympics, but it has sort of the drama that makes, you know, for great entertainment and great sports. Same thing with uh, track and fields. I really enjoy the basketball. You know, as somebody who's sort of a casual NBA fan, I find I actually enjoy it more sort of seeing it in a different in a different light. I think people need to know how good the Americans are at water polo, uh, both men's and women, um, sort of dominant. The same thing with you know women's rowing this is a sport i enjoy watching their women the women's eight team is just beyond dominant that will be a lot of fun to watch i mean i think getting a chance to see you know a legend like simone biles is just really cool to have that experience uh, to see the best of all time probably in her prime is just kind of awesome so i think there's a lot to look forward to there's a lot to sort of be concerned about a lot to just like all right are we gonna get through this you know are people gonna be okay is it gonna be weird with no fans there are very limited fans there you know I, I was reading today they can't really make any noise uh the fans who are allowed which i don't know how you police that but it's, it's going to be very different it's going to be obviously a little bit uncomfortable but at the same time i think there's going to be enough that'll make obviously people you know keep watching but at the same time like we're going to have to you know, hold our breath just a little bit, which is going to make for something obviously that we've never experienced before.
1: Out of the five new sports, or quote unquote new sports, because we have some of returning sport in the program, what are you most looking forward to?
0: Yeah, well, I would say baseball, but I'm not sure that qualifies because uh, it's a returning sport. Three and three basketball should be really interesting. It's like, again, uh, you know, it's very clear that the IOC is trying to get younger. Viewers, younger fans, which makes sense. You know, you see surfing and skateboarding, and you know some of the winter events like the big air event and snowboarding. And three on three, I think, is a, another way to do that. I think it'll be interesting just because it's sort of an odd format for the sport. It's you kind of think about just like pick up basketball with your friends and playing three on three. You know, in a way that you kind of can't do with any of these other sports. I don't know. It'll be interesting. And I think i be really curious to see if any of the three on three stars, you know, particularly from the U S but even around the world, it's like, all right, can they parlay this into like an NBA career it would be interesting to me. Yeah. I think that'd be interesting to see. And also just like see it juxtapose against the traditional basketball, which is going to have some big stars. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what sort of play it gets. Cause it's, you know, it's basketball. It's you know, basketball is one of the biggest sports there, and it's like a the weird cousin. So that'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out, and I'll be curious to uh to watch it and really see it for the first time, at least at a high level.
1: You also include the Paralympics here and there in the book. Yes. How do you think the world, or at least the country here in the U.S., how we're starting to see the Paralympics?
0: I think it's awesome. We have so much work to do in terms of making the Paralympics more mainstream. You know, the fact that they're on TV, I think, is incredible. I imagine most people sort of tune out for the Paralympics. The, you are starting to get more coverage. Um, some of the stars um, are starting are starting to become, you know, more part of the regular Olympic coverage, particularly in the trials. I don't think people realize how awesome the Paralympics are. Getting a chance to write about some of some of the athletes in the Paralympics was unbelievable you know you, you think you know you're, you're dealing with people who are have probably some of the most perseverance out there and unbelievable athletes just doing unbelievable things i hope that we can start to cover it and watch it and just sort of talk about it a little bit more everybody was talking obviously the oscar Pistorius, uh, not the later oscar Pistorius, but the olympian oscar Pistorius part and i think people were sort of intrigued by that um but If you want to see more of that, just wait after the Olympics and watch the whole thing. You know, you get some different events, you get some of the same events. The great thing about the Olympics that I just love more than anything is being able to see people from all walks of life. You know, everyone made fun. Everyone was sort of, you know, the internet was ablaze with that Tongan guy who was all covered in oil but it's it's a it's a way to see different cultures right or in different walks of life and you sort of see particularly in countries that we don't know much about uh, whether it's the traditional dress or whatever the same thing applies to the paralympics there so are people from different walks of life who are dealing with things that maybe we don't have experience with or too much exposure to and so if we think of the olympics as more than a sporting event as sort of this cultural event as sort of a history lesson sort of this crash course in, in world culture and history in a and it's like the best way to learn about these things because you're watching sports, but you're also learning. I think people get a lot more out of it. And that's how I try to approach just watching it and writing about it. We're learning and we're seeing so many things that we just don't get to see on a daily basis. You know, Yes, professional sports are much more globalized than they used to be. And you know, the NBA has all these amazing international players, but that's, they're talking about on the court stuff, you know, by and large, this is a chance to learn sort of what happens off it. Um, I think the Paralympics are just another representation of that. Just getting more exposure to different types of people from different backgrounds from all over the world, um, and how they sort of all work to do something incredible. And yeah, I hope we start to do more of it. We're obviously not anywhere close. And I, you know, I include some Paralympians. I should, I, you know, certainly could have included a, a whole lot more. And so I hope that you know we can start talking a little bit more. And there's some of just amazing stories in the Paralympics just like the Olympics, and it deserves it deserves all that coverage and more.
1: Uh, So what is next for you? Are you going to write more Olympic stuff or?
0: Yeah. um, You know, TBD, exactly. I would love to keep writing about the Olympics and sort of this historical, quasi-historical lens that I've sort of applied to it. You know, like I said earlier on, there's so many more stories that we haven't talked about or stories that got a little bit of attention in the book and are probably worth more. Yeah, for me, I think it's something that's a lifelong endeavor It's just writing and and learning and, you know, exploring the Olympics as a sports writer, but just, you know, putting sort of this historical cultural lens is something that, you know, I don't think I'll ever stop doing.
1: Okay. Games are 17 days long. What are your strategies for watching them and the endurance of the event?
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to stretch and stay hydrated have the proper snackage nearby, I think you have to, the most important thing is to not be discouraged when people tell you to turn the channel. I remember very vividly in college, the Olympics, it was really only, a, not an issue, but it was really only a thing. It only occurred once with the Winter Games when I was in college, because so I was like right before my, it was my senior year of high school and my senior year of college the Olympics. Obviously, the Summer Games didn't really count for that. And so, I, it was my senior year of college, I was living with three guys. And I was watching 24-7, and they were so annoyed. There was one TV, and they were not happy with me. And the first few days, "Eh, it was fun. Let's watch the Olympics together. And then by day five, they were done. And I was just beginning. And so I think you have to have that endurance. I think the same thing, you know, now by like day 12 or 13, my wife gets a little tired of it. This year, I have the excuse by saying like, it's my job. I have to watch it, which I can't wait to use. I don't know how long that's going to last yeah, you just have to be dedicated and, and, you know, take it also, I think like how cool is it? You can watch it 24 seven. Like the best part to me about working from, you know, I was all working from home now or, you know, many of us still are. I can have like three screens going and no one's going to judge me. Like, that's awesome. I don't think I'll get much work done, but you know, that's okay. I guess for, it's only two weeks, so it's not too bad. There's some weekends there. Yeah. It's, I don't know. To me, it's like, it's just the, the coolest thing to uh, have like three events going on at once I was going to ask about multiple
1: screen strategies.
0: Definitely. If you have like a dual monitor set up, which, like which I have on the computer, that's a good way to start. You know, you, get one mod- you can get one monitor and the TV. The phone is underrated. It can work too. Like it's sort of, this is what I do with like March Madness too. You have to sort of stagger what's important. Um, you don't need to see every single minute of every event, but if you kind of know... When things are getting interesting, you know you don't have to watch the first heat of a swimming event, but like you know you got to be ready for the final one. Um, I think if you sort of learn that, and and I think I I do this often throughout the day. It's like all right, what's on in prime time? Like what's going to be a, a replay? What can I watch live? You know, obviously it's very easy to just turn it on in prime time and you'll get a good gist of the games. But some of the exciting stuff, especially given when there's a time difference, like there will be this time, being able to watch some of those things live is pretty exciting. And to, again, it's just more opportunities to watch and, you know, to learn more. We, we've been delayed a year, so I feel like we have to, like, get as much as we possibly can.
1: All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeremy. You can follow Jeremy on Twitter. He is at JAF78. He was a no, lot of I do. fun.
2: The book is a lot of fun. The book is a lot of fun. And I do want to mention that we never talk to an Olympic historian without getting into some Avery Brundage talk. That is correct. We've we have saved that for our special patrons.
1: Right. So to get that bonus audio, you can go to patreon.com slash flamealivepod and select one of the levels that offers bonus audio every month. You get a special show just for you. Welcome. Shook, yes, it is time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive, who are past guests of our show this week. Some tough news for our para writer, Sydney Collier. She was named to be an alternate for this year's Paralympics. But the good thing is she gets to travel with the team to Tokyo. And, and you're part
2: of the team. I will say that. It's better she than goes, not being on the she's team. She's going to camp and they will be heading to Tokyo. So uh, congratulations to Sydney. Coinciding with her departure as the member of the IOC, Keegan Randall has stepped down from her role on the U.S. OPC Board of Directors as well.
1: And our uh, Paralympian John Register was emceed the opening of the Park Union Bridge in downtown Colorado Springs. So Olympic City. Exactly. Fun to Tokyo 2020 news as always. If you're driving down the highway or in one of some select cities across America, you might see the Olympic rings because NBC is trucking them around in their Rings Across America tour, which is kind of it is a massively long semi with like the middle cut out. And the rings are on a pedestal are are just like propped up on a little uh, stand. And then there's just a, a Tokyo signage around it.
2: Will they throw me some Oreos?
1: I think it would be nice just from the truck. Throw yeah, them out. like throw
2: they them. throw beads at Mardi Gras.
1: Right, right. Uh, so it was first in Los Angeles over the, this past weekend. Then it's on its way to Chicago for a, Ju- a July 9th stop. Then to Miami, Orlando, Washington, D.C., and New York City. The opening It gets to New York opening day, and it will be at Rockefeller Plaza. If it'll The rings will cover 8,000 miles of roads and visit 25 states. So maybe you will see them. Uh, bad news and coming out of Tokyo is that COVID cases are rising and they, they really are rising from they were like a couple hundred. And now in they're in like the five, six hundreds. So that's not great news. It's. Very worrisome for the organizing committee, for the government. So the organizing committee uh, is considering postponing the announcement of the ticket lottery results, which were supposed to be announced on July 6th. Now it may be a wait and see because we may have to change the limit on spectators again, because right now it's maximum 10,000 or 50 percent of the the venue. But they may have to take that 10,000 number down. Kind of crummy news if you're a Japanese athlete. The Kyoto News is reporting that you will only be eligible to take part in the opening and closing ceremonies if you're staying at the Athlete's Village around that time, or eligible to stay at the Athlete's Village around that time. So that's part of all of the regular steps. That's kind of a bummer, because you're already somewhat local, and it would be—you know, that whole— You walk in as the host nation and the stadium goes crazy moment. That's uh, really something that a lot of athletes have mentioned to us is so powerful. But it's really uh, kind of a bummer that some of these athletes will not get to have those moments. The Japanese Olympic Committee has also told sports federations that athletes will not be allowed to take photos with their smartphones or cameras when they march in the stadium. No reason why, but... Maybe it's because they'll want to be close to each other. And, I, you know, just like, oh, hey, take a, let's take a picture of you and me or whatever. But that's also kind of rough.
2: Or maybe they're just using it as an excuse because they're tired of seeing all the athletes walk around with their phones.
1: I think, but I, I also get it from the athlete's perspective. Like, I got to capture
2: this moment. Right. It's Remember when John McLeod was telling us how he, back in 76, tried to sneak his, like, you know, Kodak Instachrome into the is <laughs> one sort of blurry picture. So it's it's a once in a lifetime event. Exactly. So understood both ways here.
1: Mm-hmm. Also, some frustrating news from inside the games. Samoa has closed its borders due to COVID. So that affects the athletes who are currently in the country. If they're in the country, they can't get out of the country. And that means they can't go to Tokyo to compete in the games because they don't know when this ban will be lifted. So that affects three weightlifters, so they will not be competing this year. Uh, athletes from Samoa who are currently training in other countries, they can go to Japan, but they can't go to Samoa when they're done.
2: I'm very worried now.
1: Are you? Are, I, I don't like the spike.
2: I don't like the spike. The bloom is definitely off the rose. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I'm even going to be able to enjoy it all that much?
1: That's a good question. I kind of wonder if we need to see more teams arriving and if we can get through a few countries coming in and there's no cases that get off the plane.
2: Because, you know, there is no way that this is going to come off well in the media, certainly not in the U.S. Right. We just know the narrative has already been written. Mhm. Maybe Simone Biles can go flip over something and distract everybody. I hope so. Maybe she can do a triple pike and that we'll be talking about that forever.
1: I hope so. And the sad thing is only time will tell. Come on Japan, come on athletes, delegations, let's do our part.
2: You know mm-hmm. who doesn't get covid? Who? Dogs. Hmm. That's why I still say dogs should be in the Olympics.
1: Oh. Maybe someday. What would be fun is if there was new Paralympic competitions. So instead of running with a guide runner, you run with your guide dog.
2: I would love that. Anything to have a dog involved. My dog will make me feel better and make me more excited. There you go. So- she, she watches it with me. So she's definitely an Olympic fan. There we go. There we go. Well, that will do it
1: for this episode. Let us know what you think about the ongoing ongoing COVID situation in Japan.
2: Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook.
1: Join us on Thursday when we are going to have historian Georgia Servan on to talk about the evolution of women's gymnastics. So as we go out to music by Mercury Sunset, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Subscribe to our Patreon feed. It's WWW. www. Who says that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Grandma. Right?